Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hi there, Big Fish listeners. A couple of months ago, I received a LinkedIn message from Debbie Easterday, which first of all is an awesome name, I'm just saying. Um, And she had heard the podcast and wanted me to consider joining her for a discussion on the Recruitment Working Lunch, a UK-based network of global TA professionals who meet regularly to share their lunch, their experiences, and a featured speaker. I had not heard of it before, I have to admit, so I did a little research and was blown away by the concept. Basically, it's a daily opportunity for TA professionals to learn and connect via Crowdcast. Love it. So, Debbie asked me to talk about high-volume recruiting, and the result is our candid conversation on the top five things to get right, coming up right after this reminder about ATAP, which, as my regular listeners know, in my opinion, is the professional association for those who are serious about growing their TA career. Members get access to an inclusive online community with webinars, a TA body of knowledge library, and a network like no other. It's really the only global member-driven not-for-profit representing all of the talent acquisition discipline, and it's definitely worth joining. I encourage you to look them up if you're not already a member at atapglobal.org. Now, on to Debbie Easterday and me on the Recruitment Working Lunch. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Working Lunch. And I always want to say good morning because it is morning for us over here. And it's extra, extra morning for my guest today, Erin Peterson. So thank you for waking up at the crack of dawn. My pleasure. (laughs) My pleasure. It's kind of normal for me. I'm a Midwest girl, so (laughs) getting up with the chickens is fine with me. That's it. That's what we do. We got stuff to do. So today, as everyone is filing in, we are going to be introducing somebody very special. We have a lot of brain power in front of us right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. So Aaron, well, come on, Aaron. You've seen your you've seen your resume. Aaron Peterson, let everybody know who you are. Tell us a little snapshot about your background and why she why we should all be uh listening in extra hard about these Mm -hmm. tips today, your top five. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's been really great to get to know you as we prepared for this. And (laughs) I'm really looking forward to today. I am a consultant with people results. I'll Maybe at the right point, I'll tell how that came about. But basically, it is a, a small firm of 25 consultants. Most of us come out of Accenture a past. So if you're familiar with that large consulting firm, Accenture, there's a connection there. And I spent about 20 years with Accenture learning how to recruit. And then I uh, was a headhunter for a couple of years. And then I went to Hewitt Associates, which is a global professional services firm and was their global head of talent acquisition. Then I went to Amazon and did my time there, learned a lot and uh, was in charge of recruiting for their digital division meaning the Kindle, if you're a reader, as well as the phone that nobody bought, but (laughs) took all that talent and ported it over to Alexa. So certainly many of you have heard of Alexa. So a really interesting time finding natural language processing scientists, you know, to do that kind of work. And uh, then I came to Austin, Texas, 
I've actually moved five times for my career. Not that that's so interesting. A lot of people move, but maybe not that much. Um, and that included a stint in Europe where I spent three years with Accenture leading recruiting across West Europe, and then specifically leading recruiting for Austria, Switzerland, and Germany. So if anybody is listening from Germany this morning, guten Morgen. <laughs> we we <laughs> about the best I can details. do. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Order, Order I, I love the fact that you lived abroad and I, I we talked yeah. about this. I want to do a whole nother show with you about that because I think everyone thinks it's so romantic to imagine going over and living in Europe and you know Well it was actually yeah. to a certain extent. Actually my first international project was in Paris and that was awesome and it gave me a little bit of an on-ramp to figure out can you know, can I and my family, because I had small children at the time, do the Europe thing and, you know, feel comfortable here? And the answer was absolutely yes. So then when the Germany opportunity came up with Accenture for me to be an expat, I put my hand up and never I looked back. It. So Well, this will yeah. be, oh, look at someone, somebody is. Alles klar. Genau. Ganz genau. That's my favorite German phrase, actually, because it's so German. It means completely, exactly. So in what other language do we say <laughs> completely, exactly? Ganz genau. Well, the Germans are all about precision. Yes. It's exact. It's precise. Yeah. It's, Jawohl. Yeah. That's why we love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, today we are talking about how, well, we were laughing about it before the, the, before the show started. We were chatting about how everyone just kind of thinks, oh, well, I could do large scale recruitment. How hard could it be? Well, we're about to find out how hard it could be. Maybe before you think about adding high volume recruitment to your repertoire of skills, you should listen to the checklist of our top five from our professionals. <laughs> so this is the top five for how to get high volume or large scale recruitment right. So here we go. Well, maybe before we start with the how-to, we might want to define, if it's okay, I'll define yeah. what, I, what I think large-scale recruiting is, because it's not the same to everyone. You're right. And I have certainly overseen recruiting teams that are hiring hundreds, thousands, and tens of thousands of hires. Once you get over a thousand hires, it doesn't change significantly. You just need the infrastructure to be able to handle that kind of volume. And so to get a, maybe a little more specific, probably the largest volume that I've overseen was when I led the recruitment process outsourcing business for Aon Hewitt. So when I was with Hewitt, I was their global head of talent acquisition. We hired about 6,000 people a year, 2,000 of which were in India. So I actually had a large team in India uh, that both managed recruiting locally for their own business, as well as a sourcing team that sourced for the rest of the globe. So that would be sort of one way to think about, um, I call it follow the sun recruiting. You basically have teams all over the world who are doing pieces and parts of the process so that you don't lose any time when the sun goes down. But once Aon bought Hewitt, the Aon organization had an RPO, Recruitment Process Outsourcing Business, as well as Hewitt had one. They had to put them together. And since they, I guess I was in the house and they didn't have a better idea. So they said, Aaron, would you run this RPO business? And I was happy I'm to do sure it. that's why. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess I'm a sucker for, you know, big challenges. Um, so I inherited 550 recruiters. We had 23 different clients. 
uh, $70 million in revenue. I had never run a P&L before, so that was a, an interesting uh, challenge. We hired about uh, 75,000 people a year in that role. <laughs> so you can imagine, I, you know, taking on this challenge, let's call it large-scale recruiting, I had to really think about how do I organize my team of 550 recruiters? I mean, it's basically a, a military operation. It's an army of recruiters serving a number of different constituents on an ongoing basis. And you have to get organized to do that. So uh, that would be the most extreme example. I have also implemented this model for, you know, only a couple of thousand hires, but I do believe in it. So I'm going to just kind of go through how I think about large scale recruiting. And I'm kind of passionate about this. So you're, you might just have like cut me off at some point and say, no way, <laughs> enough, enough, uh, because I love it. And, you know, I, I sort of always keep in mind that we in recruiting have this unique blessing or challenge to stand at the crossroads with other humans who are either hiring managers or candidates, and we're literally changing their lives. So what I always keep in mind is I'm changing people's lives. I need to get this right. right. And if that means at a on a large scale, then I'm going to make sure I organize to get it right. So uh, the number one thing is the right org strategy and leadership. Number two, right tech stack. Number three, right partners. Number four, right metrics. And number five, right expectations. So how do we want to dig into that? You want me to just start at the beginning? Let's start with number okay. one. Yeah. All right. Right. It does start because it does start at the top. <laughs> yeah, you have to get the right organization. So, so the way I think about dividing up large-scale recruiting into its component parts, and this is based on my own experience as a recruiter for many years and a recruiting manager, and then eventually recruiting leader, is that what I have noticed in recruiters is that there's not just one kind, and if you're doing full life-cycle recruiting, I guess that's a generally accepted term. You're doing sourcing, you're doing candidate care, and you're doing the operational side, which is the data input and the managing the candidate in the applicant tracking system. In 30 years of recruiting and leading recruiters, I have never met a recruiter who loves all three of those things. They typically love the sourcing, they love the candidate care, or they love the operational component. To find all that in one person, it's pretty rare. And then that person is typically a headhunter and doing very low volume recruiting. So good for them. But if you're doing high volume recruiting, in my experience, it works really well to divide the teams and give recruiters an opportunity to put up their hand and say, I really like the sourcing. Can I just do that all the time? Or I really love the candidate care. Can I just focus on that? Or I really love checking the boxes of all the steps that we have to go through and make sure we have a good candidate experience. Can I just do that full time? So that's my typical approach. I'll go in and give people the vision. First of all, explain in great detail what each of those roles looks like. And then the team members can put up their hand and say, I like this part best. Can I just focus on that? And then you need a leader of each of those three areas. You need a great sourcing leader who's got an amazing technical capability to ensure that sourcing is going to happen well and feed the pipeline so that the candidate care folks, whose leader has to be all about candidate care, can move candidates forward, interact with them, make them feel great, and not so much worry about what sourcing is being done or what operational pieces are being done. And then the operations person has to be just a great administrative person. Define the candidate care piece. This would be more the the 
kind of the normal thing that most people think recruiters do all day, which is make phone calls, assess candidates, screen, sell the opportunity, you know, the the front facing through relational piece of recruiting. So that's what I call candidate care. It's what candidates see and feel. And frankly, if you're really good at that and you love it, it's awesome to have somebody sourcing and somebody handling the operations because you can just do that and not end up with that dilemma that you always have as a recruiter, which is my candidates think I've gone dark on them, but really I'm just sourcing or my candidates haven't heard from me in a a minute and they're getting frustrated, but really I have to enter all the data in the applicant tracking system. Yeah. So that's, um, it can I like be a beautiful the idea model. of siloing out the functions and then mm-hmm. really allowing people to jump into the function that appeals to them and that they're passionate about. Because you're right. If I, if I ever didn't get to actually source, it'd be really sad. But you're <laughs> right. Normally people have propensities and their, their personalities align with a specific function. So getting that piece of it right makes it easier to manage. You're not forcing people yeah. to do something they don't want to do. <laughs> That's exactly right. Now, it's it's really critical that all three of those groups work very well together and that they have a technology connection. So you have to have good tech to be able to, you know, have consistency and continuity in how the candidates are managed, of course. Um, and most organizations have, you know, an applicant tracking system that everyone hates. So you have to decide... <laughs> What are the plugins to the applicant tracking system that are going to help us be more successful than if we didn't have the plugins? So you want to talk about the right tech stack? I think that's the biggest piece of it right now when you're dealing in numbers like this. It's all about using technology to streamline that communication. Yeah. And there's never been more technology to use, which is super frustrating and concerning for a TA leader because... As many of you know, I, I think if, if you're a TA leader, you're constantly getting phone calls from vendors who want to tell you about their technology, who want you to take part in a demo, who want you to you know engage them in a pricing discussion. And you don't know if that's the best option. You just know it's the, the guy who called you or the gal who called you. What I would add to the list of TA leaders for large-scale recruiting is you have to have a TA tech lead. And that person sort of sits outside of the operational delivery, and they are the one who is constantly surveying the marketplace for the, by the way, 60 new TA technologies that came on the market last year. Did you know this? No. I mean, it's it's just, it's unsustainable. How do you keep up? Exactly. Right. You can't. Uh, not, not if you have a full-time job focusing on managing a team, right. managing upward to your stakeholders, typically if you're the TA lead on a large-scale organization, you have a head of HR that you're reporting to, or you have a CEO you're reporting to. I mean, those people need to know what's going on. You don't have time to sit in demos all day. So what I am recommending to all my clients these days, if they hire any more than a thousand or 2000 people a year is to have someone on their team whose accountabilities include watching over all the new TA tech that's coming onto the market and deciding, well, should that be part of our long-term roadmap or not? And making a conscious decision rather than a reactive decision when you have a salesperson who calls you. So critically important. I mean, what I have to say I'm loving these days is things like conversational AI, 
which we used to call chatbots, but they've yeah. evolved significantly and they can now actually run most of the process for you, especially on hourly hiring and uh, other high volume roles. I mean, if you if you have any nano minute to go online at HR Tech, which, by the way, is the big conference that used to cost thousands and thousands of dollars to attend in Las Vegas. It went online this year with COVID, of course. So there's all kinds of great presentations out there about the, the TA tech that's now available. I love Alio. I think Wade and Wendy has some really interesting things to offer for uh, conversational AI. Maya, Olivia, I mean, just take your pick. Yep. Have, a, have a look at what they will do. If you're struggling with large-scale delivery, there's a lot that can be just done on the mobile phone. And frankly, I think candidates like it because it gets them from, let's call it a three-week process down to a one-week process. Or Maybe they submit a resume days. and never hear back. Well, exactly. You know, at least there's an action. It avoids they the feel black like hole. It's, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And and especially for hourly, you know, we don't need to spend a lot of time falling in love with each other for most hourly positions. People want a job and we want to hire them. So let's take all the friction out. Um, I know my, my friend... Katrina Collier would, you know, raise a red flag because she is all about human uh, touch. the ro yeah. the robot proof recruiter yeah. Yeah. and the human touch. So I do not disagree with that at all, especially for more senior roles, mid-level roles, or if you're a headhunter and have the luxury, you know, of, of spending all that time with candidates. But I think for high volume hiring, it really is worth looking at the chatbots that have now evolved into conversational AI. I'm a fan. And I would say beyond that, um, if your organization is not investing in workforce planning and predictive analytics, um, that's a bummer because then you as a recruiting leader are always chasing after reactivity. If you've got a workforce plan that you can plan forward to and uh, put your tech stack I around. I candidates into those positions. Yeah, exactly. That's Which is always what hiring managers ask for, right? I want a pipeline. Well, how do you how do you build a pipeline if you don't know what the long term needs are? So that's really critical. Um, and then, of course, all the sourcing platforms that are, again, lots of vendors will call you up and say, this is going to solve all your problems. Well, OK, maybe, but probably not. Probably I just need to make some strategic decisions about what sourcing I want to use and what the sourcing team should use. And they're going to have an opinion because they actually have the time to focus on what's working and what's not in sourcing. And then, of course, branding and analytics. So. Yeah, and I think that I love the idea of having somebody that's completely dedicated to managing the tech because you're right, there's so much of it that's available and it's overwhelming. And I personally also love demos. Oh, do you? But, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Because right. I, I love to learn about all these new products and see what they can do. But mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think it's when you have teams that are this size, everybody gets the, really excited about tech and everybody's got their own tools. But yeah. the problem is when you've got your data in this system and then you've got uh, this recruiter's got all of their candidate data living on this platform right. and then this person keeps all of their information in an Excel spreadsheet, what mm -hmm. happens when those folks leave? Yeah. You know, So having the continuity of your tech across the organization is so smart. But you have to have one person in charge of it in order to make that work. Because right. every well, organization I've worked in, every recruiter had their own tools. Yeah. And that's a little dangerous. I mean, certainly for large-scale recruiting, yeah. 
It's very dangerous. I mean, when you consider the global data privacy requirements in Europe, when you think about the affirmative action requirements in the U.S., I mean, you've if you're hiring large scale, you are going to be called to account for that at some point in terms of how you've been encouraging diversity, equity, and inclusion and protecting people's data. So can't have multiple systems, got to have one, and then make sure that all the plugins are uh, accountable as well. And then making sure that everybody mm-hmm. is using them yeah, and oh, understands oh. the importance oh. of yeah. Compliance is a whole different matter. (laughs) But if you have the operations team and it's their job to have clean data and drawing metrics every every week, and they are the ones who are looking at whether the scorecard really matches what we know the activity is, that can be fixed. Compliance can be fixed when you have people who are just focusing. When I say compliance, I mean data compliance, data entry compliance can be fixed when you have people focused on it. So you're bringing, uh, you're, you're coming into a new organization and they've just brought on a client who needs to hire 5,000 employees next mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And you have a team of five. Yeah. Well, that brings me to the topic of right partners because you may not have the headcount or the budget to have more headcount, which of course most organizations don't these days. So especially for a hiring surge, which is what I would call that, you have to figure out what partners to work with. And those partners could be an RPO, of course. They could be an RPO plus temp agency. You could choose a number of gig providers because that now is a legitimate source of employment candidates. And then I would add to that uh, search firms. So you're, yep. you're, you're going to need some search partners. Okay, assuming that those 5,000 are not all the same level and type of hire, chances right. are there's a stratification of levels and types of roles. So the, the you know first thing is to come in and, and get your arms around, what are we talking about here? What kind of roles? What kind of levels? Functionality, geography, uh, complexity. So once you have the answers to that, and there aren't always clear answers, but if you have something close to some answers on those 5,000, what they look like, then you can put together your sourcing strategy and identify who your partners are going to be. And especially in working with an RPO, I mean, let's say of the 5,000, 3,000 are high volume hires. Right. So, so right. Or, or let's call them hourly, same role, repeatable hires. Um, once you know the basics about that, then you can start to think about which RPO could deliver that the best. And that's, it's a little hard to identify. There are, of course, some lists out there that, you know, the HROA has their Baker's Dozen. So you could consult the Baker's Dozen list, which by the way, is global. It's a global view of RPOs. I like that. Okay. I think most people in the RPO industry would tell you there's a little bit of pay to play going on there. So you have to dig under the covers to really figure out if the top of the rankings are better than the bottom of the rankings. But having said that, I'm a big fan of the RPOA. That's the RPO Association, slightly different from HROA and nonprofit. And uh, they do not have a pay to play. They just, they dedicate themselves to providing a level playing field of information for all RPOs out there. So for what it's worth, today, it's, it's kind of heavily weighted on US RPOs. So sorry about that in Europe, but I would imagine you know, I, I think it's coming soon for them to be more globally minded. I think this partnership piece is so critical yeah. because so many people 
when they want to scale up, they make the assumption that they should hire a huge team. That's what closes doors. Mm-hmm. And 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 by the way, you if you have the right partners and the right tech. So back to my thing about conversational AI for some of those high volume roles. Honestly, you don't need recruiters. You just need a good process that you can configure into the tool uh, and make sure it's sound and get feedback and make sure you're understanding how the candidates are actually experiencing it. And it's not something isn't stuck somewhere. But boy, I mean, there's no you don't need a big team anymore. And it doesn't have to take three to four weeks to hire one person. I mean, average time to fill, depending on the role, is anywhere from 30 to 45 days. For more senior roles, it's 60 to 65. I don't know. I think if you've got 5,000 hires and 3,000 of them are, are high volume, you you could do those in, depending on the role, two weeks, one week. You just have to get it right. You have to get yeah. the process right and the tech and the partners. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of a challenge is it to find those partners, especially when you're working with the small firms? And how much focus is put on how you're representing us? If you are a partner, it's hard. It's really hard because there are so many of them. And, you know, no disrespect to anybody who's hung out their own shingle, but the barrier to entry to call yourself a recruiter is quite low. You don't need today any particular certification or verification. You know, it just, you and I were laughing earlier. We've all been to restaurants. And if you go to a good one, you walk in and you think, hey, I might like to have a restaurant someday. That's how hard can it be? <laughs> <laughs> the same is true with recruiting. Everybody has had some experience in their life yeah. with either a corporate or headhunter recruiter. And they think, hmm, how, how hard could that be? All I know, they do is look at resumes. I know day. a lot of people. <laughs> I could definitely be a headhunter. Well, guess what? I mean, it's hard. It's super yeah. hard to do it well. And uh, so I think it's really critical to know your network, know your partners, get good referrals from people, do your due diligence. If you're choosing a large partner, especially, you know, to to handle a volume hiring situation and, you know, let's, let's just say it. If you feel like you can't find the right partners, you need to go back to whoever's got the demand, the 5,000 hires in your scenario and say, we need to rethink this. Because I have a feeling this is going to be a train wreck and I don't want to disappoint you. So let's talk about those 5,000 hires because it seems like what you're asking for or the budget that you've given me or, you know, any, any whatever it is and parts, it's not adding up to success. So I am a big fan of recruiters and recruiting leaders having a point of view and not just being a yes person, but saying this isn't going to work very well. Here's what we need to do to change the trajectory. Uh, and if, and if, you know, good, fast, cheap pick two, right? So you, you can't have all three. Uh, so, so let's decide what we're going to invest in here. And otherwise I want to lower your expectations because, you know, we, we, we can't do something with nothing. So, yeah. So there you go. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Um, (laughs) right expectations. Oh, that fits very well into what I just said. Yes. It's been my experience, and I'm, I'm sure many uh, listening would have a similar, and that is you can do anything if you set expectations, anything. Like you just have to let people know what to expect. So if I'm doing an intake with a hiring manager, I'm saying for these roles, it's probably going to take 30 to 45 days for us to get to the finish line. 
And then that's not the start date for the candidate. They need to give their notice and then you'll see them sitting in the chair or on the video, you know, some point at some point after that. Is that going to work for you? So you're literally setting their expectations. For candidates, if you say to a candidate, I've worked a lot with this hiring manager. I know they move very, very slowly. I just want to set your expectations. They're very busy. They have a lot of meetings. They travel a lot. This is probably going to take two months. Can you live with that? Yeah. So you've just set candidate expectations. If I have a CEO who's got a huge business objective that they need to meet and my ability to hire 3,000 people hangs in the balance of whether they can accomplish that. I'm going to be bold-faced honest with that CEO and set her expectations that we just may not be able to make that. Here's what we can make. She'll be fine. You just need to set expectations. So uh, in my mind, many of us go into recruiting because we are people pleasers. We are salespeople. We love the hunt. You know, there's all kinds of personalities that go into recruiting. Setting boundaries is not typically part of that personality profile. <laughs> so, in, and, I'll, <laughs> and I'll speak for myself here. I'll, I want to please everybody. I want everybody to be happy. I want to say yes all the time. Yeah. But what I've learned is it is the death knell if I don't set some very clear expectations. And when I do, things go much, much better. I've got the the breathing room to do what's right. Uh, people aren't pounding me for something that I overpromised and underdelivered. That that would be, I think, a critical piece of uh, large scale recruiting. I like it too. And and then when you're having those discussions on the front end, if there's a disconnect in terms of expectations, we're not finding that out after I've delivered what I think is a success. Oh, that's a heartbreak, and then isn't it? You, and yeah. then you think, what is this? You yeah. know, I mean, it's that's a nightmare. So. I, I think you're right. The expectations are everything. And yeah. what you might say, I that was a wild success. We filled 10,000 roles in three months. Yeah. And they said it took them three months. Right. We needed them until that. Right. Exactly. So it's perspective is everything. And uh, no, you, you killed yeah. it. So we've got five. We've got the Right org strategy and leadership. We've got mm-hmm. the tech stack. You've got your partners. Metrics. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about metrics. Okay. So there's a lot you can measure. What I find matters most falls into four categories. Again, especially for large-scale recruitment. Cost to recruit or cost per hire. Uh, that seems like table stakes. But when you are an individual recruiter, individual contributor, you're probably not watching over the cost per hire. So as a recruiting leader, especially large volume, you have to watch over it. And there's a lot of benchmarks out there. You you can find out what, you know, for your specific industry is the typical cost per hire. So the again, setting expectations with leaders, it doesn't cost nothing to hire people. Right. It also doesn't have to cost millions. So somewhere in the middle, you have to set expectations. So cost, quality, speed, and satisfaction. That's my my kind of big four. So we talked about costs. Quality has different measures depending on what type of person you're hiring. It may mean that you measure early attrition and that anybody who leaves before their 90-day anniversary is a, let's call it, recruiting error. You know, we could have done a better job of vetting this candidate so that they didn't end up leaving or we didn't end up firing them before 90 days. 
I mean, I'm, 90 days is not a magic number. You just have to figure out what makes sense for your business. But early attrition is typically a good measure of quality. I think in organizations that have a much more integrated performance management system, you can link the assessment process to the downstream performance rating and start to make some better business hiring decisions that way. But that's pretty sophisticated. And I hardly see any organization that has that straight line from higher to longer term performance. What I think is more measurable is source to longevity. So if we, of course, capture, that's the first thing we have to capture where we found the candidate. And then long term, we can see how long those people stay. That gives us some indication of whether that source is a good source for us a productive source and produces people who don't leave within the first 90 days. So that would be quality, one version of a quality. Some organizations, sorry, just one more footnote on that. Some organizations just go to the hiring manager after 90 days and say, how's it going? And if they get a thumbs up from the hiring manager, they consider it a win on, you know, quote, quality of hire. Quality, yeah. Yeah. So um, that can be very useful as well. So, but you have to capture the data and report it out. And I like that you're even bothering because I, when I see these organizations and the metrics, that it's all about time. It's all about cost. And then I'm like, at any point, are you looking at what you're paying for? Or yeah, yeah, the position was filled, but it was filled and then it had to be backfilled again in three months. And then it had to be backfilled again six months after that. And so that's a red flag and that's how you identify your bigger issues. So many people skip quality. Yeah, completely agree. And uh, also, you know, when you think about it, we're on the hook not only to serve candidates, but hiring managers. Right. And that's part of care, you know, the hiring manager care as well as the candidate care to make sure that they have everything that they need. And we don't sort of throw candidates over the wall and then never come back to them. Good. And then speed would be the other one. We've talked about speed to hire. I'm a big fan of. And, and you know what? I so I have a I have a little podcast. I think you mentioned that in your write up on me. And I always ask talent acquisition leaders when I interview them, why haven't we reduced the time to fill? Time to fill is one of those metrics that <laughs> are measured forever. And it's still after all the technology and all the process and all the, you know, supposed improvements that we've made, why does it still take 30, 45, right. 60, 90 days to fill a role, depending on the level? And typically there isn't an answer because sometimes it has to do with our own activity. Sometimes it has to do with the hiring manager, sourcing, changes in rec, whatever. But what I mentioned earlier about the conversational AI, I think that is the first in decades to actually reduce the overall time to fill. And I I have seen case studies for some of these conversational AI technologies that literally take hires from 30 days to three days. Can you imagine? You're not waiting on a person. You're not waiting on a person to be available. You can have a link. And then when you have five seconds, you can go to the link and complete the form or the questionnaire, whatever it might be. But I feel like a lot of times we're waiting on someone to free up to do the job, to check the box. And and we're busy. So the other thing I think that they're not tracking each piece of that. And and that's why I'm like, okay, you can't really identify issues unless you're tracking 
the individual components of that time that you're capturing. So how long from the date that the uh, requirement was released to candidates in queue from the sourcer? Okay, Mm -hmm. now how long between uh, we've presented these folks to the hiring manager to feedback? And then how long between feedback and interview? So that this way we can identify where's the holdup? Yeah. On our end, do we have to have a come to Jesus with the client and right. say, you're, you're killing your candidate pool because this mm-hmm. manager isn't setting aside dedicated time to get through this, through this candidate, you know, through right. the candidate pool and get them all interviewed. So, and, and that is the traditional mindset of we have a process. If it's not working, we d- try to dissect it and figure out where to lay blame <laughs> in the most negative sense or, you know, <laughs> how to find reasons for why it's not going well. And and honestly, I'm a big fan of just rethinking the whole thing and figuring out where can we cut out the waste? Yeah. Like, like not, you know, I, I saw something recently with a scorecard that measured t- uh, hiring manager response time. And I'm like, okay, that's just wrong. Like, I do not want to have that conversation with a hiring manager to tell them that they're the problem, right? I would much rather fix the process and come to them with a solution on what a better process could look like, maybe cutting out the review, maybe asking them to trust me to screen the candidates and directly schedule candidates into their calendar so that we don't have that sort of lag time in the review. I I don't know. It's one idea. There's plenty of other options as well. I like the idea of going in with solutions. That's for sure. You know, because when you're going in and, and essentially telling the hiring manager you're the problem, there's got to be a diplomatic way of <laughs> addressing yeah. that conversation. Well, and sometimes they'll admit it. They, you know, I'm the bottleneck, yeah. you know, that kind of a thing. But but if you're hiring thousands of people, you can't have that. Yeah. You're, ju- you're just not going to be successful. So yeah. you, can, you can manage that on a one-off basis, but not large scale. You, you have to fix the process. So Marco Van Dam says, very inspiring and feel free to ask me for a demo. All right. <laughs> okay, Marco. Good good <laughs> to know. Maybe, it, maybe he's got a similar experience to uh, a gentleman I talked to recently, the head of talent acquisition for US Express, which is a large trucking company. Mm-hmm. His hiring managers in the field never talk to a candidate. He, he does the whole thing on, on uh, conversational AI. Truck drivers show up for their first day never having met the hiring manager. Now that's a little extreme and a lot of organizations wouldn't stand for it. Yeah. But honestly, if you show them how much money that saves, how much time it saves, I'm pretty sure most business leaders in the field, when they have a complex trucking business to run, they'll come around because to them, time is money. And if they can just get drivers to show up and you know be reasonable quality, not, not have a lot of accidents uh, on their record, you know, that that's, actual business value that we're we're adding and maybe with an eye on the human and the experience Mm -hmm. you know we've got technology on our side maybe there's a way to incorporate in a personalized video message from the hiring manager in between that says yeah we're really really excited about having you start on the 14th and sorry we haven't had a chance to meet one-on-one but you know we're looking forward to it and yeah love it I great, mean, great idea. You record it once, yeah. use it many times. He or she puts their personal message to it and you can aggregate the whole thing. We, you know, 
why are we so stuck to the ways that we were taught? The law of primacy is a problem in my experience in recruiting. The way you were taught is the way you think it has to always go. And I'm just all about disrupting. I figured let's just use things to our advantage, but keep the human touch for sure. Figure out how to continue to infuse the human touch. Well, and and you know what, these tools and technology, a lot of times people say it's just the technology is ruining the experience. It's, you know, dividing people. You, you don't even talk to a person anymore. Well, I think you can use it wisely. I think right. you can't use it in instead of. For the right roles. For the right, <laughs> for the roles. right roles. I, I don't disagree. Uh, and for sure, at more senior or, you know, mid-level roles that are a little uh, more complex, more difficult to find the right person. Maybe the role has some ambiguity to it. I mean, that's a whole different ballgame. Then you, yeah. you have to have m- much more of a human touch. Yeah. But I'm still in favor, even with those kinds of roles, of disrupting the process to the extent that I can, gaining the trust of the hiring manager and cutting out that middle bottleneck section that is a perpetual problem of I like that weight for I had I had a boss at Accenture. Oh my gosh, one of my favorite bosses. He didn't abide the word waiting. Like if you were on a call with him talking about how things were going and you said, I'm waiting for the hiring manager, he said, ah, tell me what you're doing to get past the waiting. And I was like, oh man, he's good. So. <laughs> well, he wasn't going to let anyone sit around idle. And I no, like that. <laughs> no, no, no. No, he's no waiting is not a strategy. So, you know, that was basically his view is that we have a lot of control over the process. Let's exert that control appropriately and um, solve the problem for our clients rather than be part of the problem. You're right. I mean, waiting is not a action. Oh, no, definitely that's a good not. Point. I'm going to be using this. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, you can have it for free. Let's do a, thank you. <laughs> We're going to do a quick recap because we we made it through. I told We're you. We're out of time. Oh my We're gosh. out of time. But look at you. You nailed it. So we'll thank do our you. recap as our top five. One more time. Right organizational strategy and leadership. Number two is your right tech stack. Number three, right partners, partnerships. Four is your right metrics. And five is the right expectations. And I love it. That was, um, yeah, highly insightful, extremely humbling for people who are managing 20 recs and don't know what they're going to do about that number. So, wow. Well, listen, that's that's a real challenge as well. So I sure don't want to make it sound like it's, you know, the high volume is all that. It's just, it's all a matter of how we think about it. And if we are problem solvers, we're here to solve problems and, you know, you put your brain power into it and hopefully have a good outcome. I love it. Well, I appreciate all of your time, Erin. I love talking to you every time. And uh, I'm going to have to make up more excuses to have you on so we can. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks very much for your uh, outreach. And I am now a fan of the Working Lunch. I'm a little embarrassed. I didn't know of it before, but I do now. So I will be here in the future listening to other leaders you bring on. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Erin directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Erin on Twitter at Erin McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.